welcome to Data Science Perspectives. This series focuses on analytics and data science professionals from across industry to learn about how their career unfolded, what skills they look for when hiring, and what trends they think are coming next. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Data Science Perspectives. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Today, we're going to be joined by Craig Brabeck of McDonald's. I first met Craig a number of years ago when he was living in Atlanta, and then we got to know each other better as we were uh, both involved with some programs at the International Institute for Analytics. He's currently the Chief Data Analytics Officer at McDonald's, but he's had multiple uh, senior roles prior to landing at McDonald's. He began his career in the Navy after completing an ROTC program in college, and then spent his early years with consulting organization Deloitte. He moved on to Caterpillar, where over a 13-year career, he rose to the role of Chief Analytics Officer, and then he became SVP and CAO for McKesson. At that point, he spent a time at Ford Motor Company in a leadership role before taking his current role as Chief Data Analytics Officer at McDonald's. He has a Bachelor's in Industrial Engineering from Purdue and an MBA from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And with that, let's welcome Craig to the show. Well, welcome, Craig. Thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, Bill. It's great to be here. Great to be here. One thing I always love to start by asking uh, folks about is how they first got into the world of analytics and data science, because I think uh, everyone's gotten into it from from a, a different perspective and for a different reason. So what's your, uh, what's your backstory? You know, it's funny because anybody who's been doing this stuff more than, say, 15, 20 years will always start with, I've been doing analytics before. It was called data analytics. And for me, my story is, is, you know, I was an industrial engineer at Purdue, uh, and in industrial engineering, we're studying simulation, we're studying forecasting, we're studying activity-based costing, we're doing all these different kind of models and modeling, which really is, I think, sort of the, the, the starting points of, of analytics. And then I went into leadership roles in the Navy and sort of put things on hold a little bit in this space, came back into it when I went into grad school. Uh, and focused heavily in supply chain and quickly got into things like uh, my first roles at Deloitte Consulting were supply chain optimization problems, inventory optimization problems, forecasting problems, activity-based costing. And that really was sort of the, the fodder ground for me of getting into this space. I took it further with me later in my career, but that's really what showed me where the power of the data and the power of the information when brought into an analytics environment can, can really benefit businesses significantly. You know, you've kind of hinted at this in that answer, but you really have had a, a varied career, right? You, you know, started in the Navy, you've done consulting, you've worked for some big companies in leadership roles. How did you manage the shifts between what could be very different worlds, right? I mean, the Navy, consulting, and a big company are uh, not exactly the same environment. So what did you, like, what experience did you gain from those switches and how did you navigate them? Yeah, and I think it's a it's a good point for for thinking about careers for data scientists too. Is is you have these different legs of your journey, or as someone explained to me different chapters in your book, the career book, and you know I, I'm a really good example of having very different chapters. Uh, that first one of uh, leadership in the Navy, I took from that a lot about how getting a team mobilized around a vision and executing on the work, and oftentimes getting your plan eighty percent right and then execute. And then that last 20%, you're going to adjust as you fly, as you're doing the work and getting, getting the team mobilized to, to accomplish the mission. 
So I learned a lot more about less about perfection and more about the importance of executing to a good plan versus poorly executing an outstanding plan. Uh, that was a big piece of, of the Navy and leadership and motivation as well on how to motivate your teams. Then at Deloitte, uh, after grad school, it was completely a different environment about idea generation, problem solving and focus, and then bringing those recommendations in hand in hand with with a leadership team of a company, quickly acclimating, quickly understanding the new problems that they had introduced you to be. Uh, and in many regards, with a, because it was a strategy and operations role, you're sort of the, the hired gun is you got to come in and really figure this out quickly. Uh, while the execution piece quite often for the type of work we're doing was often then delivered by, by the client. Uh, so a little bit of a shift there and a little frustrating at times too when I couldn't see my, my solutions my recommendations fully implemented. And that what then drove me back into corporate world at Caterpillar, where I was actually leading IT implementations and strategy implementations uh, within Caterpillar's logistics environment, back to the stuff I talked about earlier. Uh, I learned corporate environment. I learned how to engage because of what I had learned with consulting. I had learned how to quickly adapt and quickly get into the organization to understand it but also how to really immerse myself into those into those uh, problems and solutions too for the company, but then taking my leadership work with me. That was then a 13-year journey at Caterpillar where I really rolled into the, that first chief analytics officer role at Caterpillar, and we can talk about that more, that drove that and how to lead large change initiatives as well, which has really been what has been propelling me into these additional CDA roles is how do you lead large change initiatives Ours happens to be data and analytics. Uh, and the background of that has, has fed me that, but I spend as much time being, I'll call an evangelist of evangelytics, while at the same time building out strong, sustainable muscle for the organizations that, that I work for, not currently McDonald's. One thing that grabbed me early in your comment that you learned from the Navy, that's a really important thing was about the, you know, executing a decent, a decent plan well versus poorly executing a great plan, right? I think that's something that has been a struggle in the analytics community. You know, a lot of us are, tend to be perfectionists and in the early days, you know, I, I was guilty of this at times, spending so much time trying to get that little bit extra lift out of a model or something when we could have just put out what we had and gotten really good benefits and, and moved on to something else that would have a higher return on my incremental hours spent. So I think it's interesting, you, you know, people would think the Navy wouldn't be related at all, but that's actually a, a a lesson that I would say many people yeah. could still heed today in the analytics space. Yeah. You know, it's, I can remember some stories from leaders that would tell me when I first came in as an officer um, and what helped the quick story, but one of those officers was somebody who was in the Vietnam war and he came in he was the, he was the one that they said, he's the, he's the guy who gets stepped on. He's the execution guy. He's not the, he's not the smartest guy, but he's the one that, gets things done. And he sat us all, sat me down and said, look, Craig, on Monday, on day you come back from a watch, say Tuesday morning, and you're reporting out something happened the night before, you need to make a decision. He says, if you come in my office and you made the wrong decision, I'm going to correct you. And we're going to talk about what would be the right way to do that. He says, if you made the right decision, great. We're going to talk about why that was the right decision. Go for it. If you made no decision, AKA failed to act, he said, that's gonna be the worst meeting that you have. So what I need you to be doing is, is acting and executing as a, as a leader and making decisions and driving forward. And so for data scientists, the way I translate that is, you know, make sure that you're not 
overthinking and over designing your solutions early on. And, you know, when it's Friday and it's say it's noon and you got some time free, or if it's Wednesday and you got some time free, don't spend it getting one more percent out of your model. Go to the business, go get in a truck and ride with a distribution center and see how they operate. At McDonald's, go work in a restaurant for a couple of days. Go understand the business and see that side of it just as much more than getting one more percent out of your forecast accuracy. Because when you go to implement, you're going to realize that's actually less important than making sure it sticks and making sure that your solution is actually built for the people that are going to be using it and it's easy for them to use. So go and see and get out inside the business itself. Uh, is a big is a big recommendation I have for for folks to to make sure that they don't like you said, Bill, get over focused on just the the purity of their models. Yeah, that's that's good advice. And you know, after the Navy, you've worked for four really big name companies. You know, Cater, Caterpillar, McKesson, Ford, and McDonald's. All very large, very different businesses. Uh, but you're dealing with issues of scale. You're dealing with issues of data. So, how did you see some similarities in terms of the challenges and approaches at some of these big companies, even though to an outsider, they would appear to be, you know, obviously completely different. Yeah. You know, the, the commonalities of them is, is they're all global companies. I mean, their, their products are in multiple countries. Their employees are in multiple countries. They're operating in, in, in these environments that are actually a little bit different in everyone that you go to, whether that be Ford or McDonald's or Caterpillar, like you said, and, they truly want to scale out. So if you make a solution take place in, say, the Netherlands, they want it to work in the United States or to Canada as well or Australia. And if you make a, a, a construction solution that makes on a, on a road in the U.S., they want it to work, that solution to work out there in, 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 in Africa as well. Just a complete desire to implement wide. But what I would say is, is don't start with a mindset of scale immediately. Think big, but start small and then move rapidly to understand the problems and then start focusing on the scale equation. You have scale in mind, but don't use that as a limiting factor in how you build out solutions and think through them to get verification that this is going to work, that you're gonna get buy-in and support, and that you're gonna get momentum and pull in from your business. So, you know, across all of those, what I've seen work successfully is to start with a more iterative focus uh, a, an agile ag, uh, product development life cycle or an analytics product development life cycle that allows you to go through some early stage experimentation and testing and piloting before you start going to, to broader scale implementation. And that would be true in all of these companies. So let's flip that script a little bit. You just talked about one or two things that are sort of commonalities across those different industries. Are there any things that jump out at you that have been rather unique about some of the analytics challenges that you had to face uh, as you switch from industry to industry? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of difference in, in, in maturity levels across companies and across industries. And it's not good nor bad. It's just that's the operating environment you are in. So when you go to Florida, dress appropriately. When you go to Canada, dress appropriately. When you go into the culture of the company, understand where they are with their analytics journey and their data maturity and their analytics maturity as well, as well as things like how they operate as a centralized or decentralized organization. 
And what you'll see is there are differences in each of these companies and in the companies that you'll go into as well is do you have a strong central analytics organization or is it distributed? Uh, don't build a strong centralized organization if everything else in the company is distributed because the company by definition is not a big fan of large corporate structures. And so the, you're gonna see a distributed model. So what I would say is in each of these companies is it, one size does not fit all in how you build out an analytics team or organization or how those employees and data scientists would then contribute to, to the org too, but really understand the culture and understand how you can lean into it very quickly and start to, to see your career in those companies. I'm glad to hear you say that in a way, because as you know, in my years where I've really more been on the, you know, the advisory side of things and, uh, you know, talking to people like you about the problems you're having, one of the recurring questions is always, Bill, what's the best org model? Everyone wants me to tell them the best org model. Like there's a, you know, the snap your fingers answer. And, and I always, and I always say sometimes to their great disappointment, there isn't a best answer. It's exactly what you said. You have to, I, I can tell you some general uh, ways that seem to work better in most cases, but there's always going to be an exception to those rules. And you're always going to have to make at least some minor tweaks to those uh, successful models to fit your, your org structure, culture, et cetera. And I think that's a really important point that, uh, you know, not everybody necessarily thinks about, right? They, they want to know just like in many problems, what is the right org structure? And the answer is there's a right org structure for any given company at any point in time. And even that company at another point in time might be better off to be doing things somewhat differently. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, it's some companies, um, I'll give you the, the automotive as an example, are pretty centralized in their product development processes and the way that they design built cars just because they're highly regulated and they have so many requirements to go through and develop expertise in those capabilities, both even from something like, as you see now with EV capabilities, but uh, the emissions requirements, the safeties requirements, the crash requirements, all of that is is got to be strongly uh, uh, centralized because as, the, it, as it changes, you need to be able to adhere across the, the global platforms. So you see things centralized. Well, that works well to have a model that is a centralized set of teams in that space that then interfaces with those additional skill groups. If you go to another organization that's really decentralized, that's very market-based, like the one I'm in right now, you got to be thinking about like, how am I going to be pushing things to the markets? And if I'm thinking that I'm pushing from the center, then I'm probably already like one strike against me. How am I getting the market to pull what I want, what, what they need from me? Um, and then I'm working on things that are very relevant to them inside those areas. That's a bit of a different model that allows that sort of forces me to be much more distributed in the analytics capabilities and the talent that we start to think about. And so just, and then you layer onto it, like how mature is the organization? Do they have data scientists or groups today? Or are they really sort of starting, starting early stages in this space for maturity? Understanding those spaces really helps you think through what your model should be. And then also what skills as a data scientist you want to be bring, bringing to those teams. You know, the, the operational scale is immense that some of the companies have been at. So, so let me just make a parallel here. If you're going to collect data and then, you know, analyze it and then disseminate out decisions to be or actions to be taken. You know, in a Caterpillar case, you're collecting data from pieces of equipment and having to then send things out to equipment. At Ford, it might be a vehicle. At McDonald's, you're collecting from a restaurant and sending things back down to a restaurant level. 
you know, that's a lot of detailed data to first collect and wrangle and then analyze and then operationally to push back analytically based decisions. How have you addressed that challenge of getting those results out to such a low, uh, a low level in the uh, organization for execution? You know, it's a, I'll go back a little bit to, it depends a little bit on the organization too. So let's take, a, I'll use two, two stark examples. Let's use Caterpillar versus McDonald's, easy. Right, one makes really big equipment that can cost over $30 million. Uh, and one makes uh, stuff that costs, I think fries are like 250 for a medium. Uh, one sells, you know, thousands of these, one sells thousands of these within 30 minutes. And the decision process that needs to take place for the organization for say something, let's just say the thing is innocuous as inventory location and optimization. You know, you're talking terms of two to three in a Caterpillar organization, potentially. That's, you know, put a couple zeros after that in ter terms of term turns for product itself. One has a shelf life, one really doesn't have a shelf life. And understanding where the decisions are made inside the organization, uh, is at a market level or a corporate level, starts to drive, Bill, what you're saying about speed and how fast do I need to make those decisions and make them available for folks and what degree of precision do they need to have to be effective. And so something like on the, on the food side, obviously the, the cadence has got to be so much quicker with regards to decision because if it's a problem today with an inventory turns of two to 300 or more, it, the problem's gone tomorrow. So someone needs to, you need to help them right away, right on that decision and get that information to them quickly so they can make it and move forward. Whereas with, with uh, inventory such as a Caterpillar, it might be a little bit slower and you can be a little bit more precise because the, the impact that it would have. So it, it drives, a, to answer your question, it depends a little bit on the business model that you're in and the speed. I, one thing I do push back on often is the concept of real time. Everybody wants everything real time. I encourage you uh, to get a good definition of what real time means uh, in your in your projects and in your work too. Uh, real time can be within the day. Real time can be within the second. Uh, it all depends on what it is and what the problem is that you're looking for. But not everything has to be within a second. And that is another great point. I think uh, what I, I, I've written about in some blogs, it might have even been in my book, The Analytics Revolution, was what I call decision time. That what you need is decision time. And if we have to make a decision before stores open tomorrow, then we need the information to make that decision before we open the store tomorrow. And getting it to me the second after I asked it doesn't necessarily add much value. At the same time, if there's a, you know, a scenario where uh, maybe an IOT application where there's something on the manufacturing line where literally you need to tell it what to do. And if you're a second late, it's too late. You need something much closer to real time. But it really is, uh, you know, people, you throw around the term real time, but, but, but a lot of the decisions that we make, luckily, actually aren't, you know, millisecond level uh, importance. Yeah. They're, they're often, you know, at least minutes to hours and sometimes days to weeks. And so you have to get a process in place that will meet that need. But if you over-engineer for a need that you don't have to make a real-time decision when you don't need it, you're just, I mean, to me, it's a waste of resources and time to, uh, yeah. to, to do that. Yeah, you know, a long time ago, we used to actually get, have classes on this. It was called the cost of additional information mm -hmm. um, in decision-making. And actually in leadership, a lot of leadership classes too, is you have this much information, you need to make a decision. 
can you extend that decision a little bit longer so you can gather additional, but what's the cost of gathering that information? And then you would make the play of whether I can make the decision now, or if I need to wait and gather the information that's worth the time or worth the cost. I feel like we've lost some of that because there's just such an expectation with consumerism having come in into um, every, our whole lives, including business that we expect it all to be here and now. But I, I encourage, you know, a little coaching to, to the students and the data scientists out there is, is always ask for clarity. Is like, when do you need this information by? When do you need this decision by? How frequently do you need this update and, and decisions as well? And don't be surprised if that answer actually changes over time. Because what we've seen with analytics projects is I only need this once a month because I make a decision on it and it becomes interesting. But then when you start to provide that information, they just they realize that they can make these decisions more frequently to create more value for the organization. And suddenly something like inventory placement. Hey, actually, I want to make that every week. No, actually, now I want to make it every day. And your requirements of what model you build and the data that you'll feed and those quality of those feeds and the governance of that data will change if you need a decision that's sub-second versus a decision that's once a month. So expect that that will change over time, but seek to get clarity about how they're making decisions and how they're using this information for, for you. So you build, I'd say, a right-size model. One idea that struck me as you were describing that too, and I, I've never seen someone set up a process in this fashion, but let's assume you have a, a, a model that's dependent on some external data that you only get on some cadence. Let's say it's weekly and it actually makes your model substantively better, but you're midweek and you ask me for an answer where I could say, well, I can give you the quick answer without that data. That'll be accurate within 5%. Or you can wait three days and I can get it within 2%. And there might be times that that really matters. And other times you say, hey, man, as long as you can break 10, this is all I need for today. Just send me the, you know, send me the result of the bad model. It's mapping, you know, again, to your point, mapping the need and the decision, both the timing and importance uh, level to what analytics are available. And there could be times that not waiting for that data makes a lot of sense because you can give the granularity needed at that point in time and waiting just costs you time. Other times you'd say, we're crazy not to wait because there's too much risk without having the uh, you know, the additional confidence. Yeah, we actually had a, a, a similar exper experience where we built the model for somebody. It was a dashboard that presented them with information to give them recommendations to do X. And they were only looking at that maybe once a month. But then, and the availability of the data, you know, I could have downtime in the course of a month. I just need it on this day. I could have lots of downtime. So we were running this thing in a dev environment and they were just pulling it off of dev. Then it became a weekly decision-making. Then it became a daily decision. And they came back to us. Suddenly, their expectations have changed as, hey, I need this thing up all the time. And when it's not up, it's actually delaying my work because I'm making decisions at 8 o'clock every morning now. And if it's not here, you're actually impacting the whole day with regards to how we're making these decisions. And it was about freight and inventory placement. Well, the the requirements changed significantly to your point and so we had to go back and say well what do you really need for data availability what do i need to do for data engineering work to actually make this right for the decisions that you want to make because the requirements changed because we got them to adopt it and that was a great problem because i don't think if we had brought all the cost and effort up front to say here's what it would take to have it right every time for a requirement you didn't have which was eight o'clock every morning they probably wouldn't have like 
funded or said, let's go do this project. So meeting them where they're at is part of this too and understanding their needs, but just checking in because it, it will change. The more that analytics gets adopted, the more this is going to, the requirements are going to change. Well, for the benefit of the students that might be listening, now that you know, you've worked at multiple big companies, you currently CEO at McDonald's, which has a fairly robust analytics organization and a, and, and a, a well-known brand people might want to work for. What, what's one or two of the key things that you and your group are looking for if you're uh, looking to hire somebody who's either brand new out of school or very close to it, maybe you know one, two years, uh, tenure, still fairly junior? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Mine might be a little bit different. The, the table stakes is you got to be, you got to be intelligent, right? You got to be, have a, a good capability of show command of what you've learned to the point that maybe you teach it or you actually show others how you do it. Um, having the knowledge and just being black box with data analytics is useful, but not as useful as somebody that can actually convey what they're doing in a more simpler fashion. So you got to be really smart as one, but you got to be able to um, translate and speak the language of the business. And often that comes through experience with presentations or just some, some good internships with, with other companies. And maybe you're not doing the most advanced analytical work, um, but you're actually showing and demonstrating that capability to communicate in a highly effective manner with your partner. So uh, intelligent and communicated, but also I'd say um, curious. You ask a lot of questions. You come prepared in the interviews asking about the company. You've done homework and research in advance to understand that it's not just, hey, let me show you how I'm capable. I'm actually meeting you halfway and I really want to lean in. So someone who's showing a lot of curiosity, both in the interview, but also in the, the, the choices that they've made and the type of work that they've done. Um, and then the third is, uh, and I take this one from a, a much esteemed colleague of mine, uh, Paul Blue, is nice. You know, we work in environments with people all the time and we really want folks that, that are gravitating to working with other team members and really like to work in a broader team environment working together. Um, so smart, nice, and curious. It's a good one. Uh, I'll, I'll pull one thread that you, you hinted at as well, which is, you know, if a student were to come and say, boy, I'm not sure what, what I want to do, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm not getting a lot of luck on my resume. Should I take a few more classes? I would say, instead of a few more classes, go do a few things, right? To your point, an internship, even if you yeah. do some hackathon, something where then you can come to that interview and say, I took these classes, but now here's where I've proven that I can apply it. And that's going to be far more than just having an extensive academic background of, you know, this method, that method, it, because if you can't apply it, it I just don't see uh, a company wanting to hire you as much. Yeah, I, I think, like you said, that's it's a, it's a table stakes requirement, but we're really looking for too that difference here is can you tell a story where you implemented it somewhere or where you tried and it didn't work? Like you got you got resistance or feedback or you were able to get that success by listing in a closer way, but we're really looking for you to tell those stories and those experiences too. And I think, it, through, like you said, by going out and going and seeing, going and doing is a great way to do that. I'll tell you what, I've, I've taken a lot of your time already and in the last minute or so remaining, is there any any big trend that you see coming our way as we look to the future over the next three to five years that that you expect is going to impact not just you and your organization, but analytics organizations across the board? Now, 
And from a technical standpoint, I still think we're just touching the surface in, in the AI world. And a couple of examples, conversational intelligence and computer vision. I think there's a whole bunch more use cases for us out there. And the current solutions are, are fairly brittle. Like they're very linear. Uh, conversation intelligence is, is coming along, but the, the, the rise of what we're doing in natural processing, the creation of these custom libraries that organizations have to make, it's still fairly linear in terms of the, the, points, the point question, the point solution. I think there's still a lot of developing opportunity in the conversational intelligence. And then computer vision, I think what we've seen in, in multiple industries, including auto, is this is a complex challenge. There are so many variables taking place and so many opportunities. I think computer vision is, a, is another big one. But then on a meta scale, what I'm seeing, Bill, is a little bit of a movement of back to basics too. Um, folks want to understand these future states, but they really want to solve some current problems right now. And sometimes those aren't the most complex algorithms or most complex uh, artificial intelligence solutions needed to start moving the needle. So I'm also seeing a move of, I'd say, back to basics of just some good old fashioned statistical process control, accuracy and reporting, decision uh, computer uh, decision sciences, using data for decision making, uh, coming back into play as well, concurrent to some of the the new technologies that are coming that are coming along. Well, thanks so much for your insights. I think this has been a, a terrific conversation with a lot to add. In fact, you've made me hungry for my favorite McDonald's item, which is a caramel sundae, but now that we're heading towards lunchtime. But uh, thanks so much for joining me and I appreciate your insights. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Take care.